My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life and in your own context to refocus on the story of Jesus. As part of my as part of my undergraduate degree at, at Samford, I in one of the kind of core classes that you take as freshmen, there is some ancient Greek and Roman philosophy in there, and I I can't tell you that I remember a whole lot from that class, but um, one thing that really did stick with me was the way that the famous Greek philosopher Aristotle described happiness or eudaimonia, if you want to impress slash annoy your friends by using the original Greek. For Aristotle, for Aristotle, happiness was simply the only value that's worth pursuing for its own sake. The only thing that's worth going after just because of what it is, for its own sake. And if you think about that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, for one, for instance, imagine that you told me that you were pursuing a promotion at work, that you wanted to be promoted to like a regional manager or something. I might reasonably ask you, oh, why do you want that job? Why do you, why do you want that promotion? To which you might respond, well, it comes with a 20% raise, and I will get to set my own schedule. Then, like an inquisitive three-year-old, imagine that I asked you, well, why do you want more money? And why is it important for you to have control over your time? Those are weirder questions, and you might give me a strange look, but you could conceivably answer me, well, with more money, I could send the kids to a private high school, and with the extra time, I want to take up fishing again. If then I just kept asking you, well, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to do that? Why do you want to do that? Eventually, you just have to throw your hands in the air and say, just, just because, because it would, it would be better. I would be better off. I would be happier. And at that point, the annoying conversation would have to end because we all know that to ask the question, well, why do you want to be happy, is a meaningless question. You don't need a reason to seek after happiness. Happiness is the one thing that's worth pursuing for its own sake. Happiness is simply just what we're all after. Our main scripture passage this morning, like I mentioned earlier, is Psalm 1, and it begins with the statement, happy is the one. Happy is the man or woman who... So if we Christians, if we were looking for a guide, for a roadmap with which to pursue this ultimate value, the one thing that's worth seeking after for its own sake, if we were looking for some guidance on the Christian pursuit of happiness, well, what might be a good place to start? Psalm 1 seems like a pretty good candidate, doesn't it? It's right there, right at the beginning. The Bible's guide to happiness. Now let's clarify some things before we continue, and we probably should start with the word happy. Uh, I'm sure that you noticed in the Pew Bibles, which are NIV translation, they did not use the word happy, did they? What did did they say in the NIV Bibles? Do you remember? Blessed. Yes, blessed is the one. And I can understand why they decided to go that route. Um, It can be some kind of misleading in a certain way. uh, To bless, that word to bless is a very important word and theme in the Old Testament. God blesses Abraham the father of his nation Israel, and that blessing gets passed down from generation to generation until it reaches its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. It's one of the most important uh, through lines and themes throughout the Bible. And the Hebrew word here in Psalm chapter 1 verse 1 is not that word for blessed, the normal word for to bless. It's a less common word that means something closer to delighted or joyful or in good spirits. 
But to be fair to the NIV, the English word happy, which is what I went with today, um, it's not quite right either. Because we tend to think of happy as like a sort of vapid and shallow kind of emotion, like happy-go-lucky, rainbows and sunshine skipping down the sidewalk. Happiness is, it's often contrasted with joy. I've made that comparison actually just right here behind this pulpit where joy is like this deep-seated sense of contentment and hope that's built upon the promises of God and happiness is just kind of a fleeting emotion or feeling. And that's not what the psalmist is trying to get after here either. The psalm is not a guide to just never-ending sunny moods or, or constant euphoria to some kind of shallow happiness. Um, as I was thinking this past week about what English word might be the best to get across what the psalmist is trying to get at here, I eventually landed on the very unpoetic term, well-adjusted. Like you might say a well-adjusted child is able to stay steady and cheerful through a variety of circumstances. A well-adjusted man or woman is resilient. Their disposition and their spiritual and mental health is, is steady, consistently and reliably positive, despite difficult external circumstances. Do you know, do you know people like this or people that seem to be closer to this than me? Are you, uh, for instance, people who are, who are solid? They seem like they've got it together. They're flourishing. They're just succeeding at, at being human. That's what Psalm 1 is about. It's a poem about the happy person, the well-adjusted, the blessed, the flourishing man or woman of God. It's what we're all after. So let's jump into it. The psalmist begins with a negative portrait, doesn't he? What is the happy person like? Well, he or she does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of scoffers. Notice the author frames this as a matter of of association, rather than action. He doesn't say, well, the happy person does not do wicked things. It does not do sinful things. It does not scoff at people. No, the author uh, refers to just being around these things. The happy, the blessed, the well-adjusted person does not even around this stuff. He doesn't walk with the wicked, doesn't stand with the sinful, does not even remain in the company of scoffers. Now, here's one of those points where we have to really make sure we're not taking away the wrong lesson here. The lesson here is not to shun or ignore sinful people, because after all, we are one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus, our Savior, made it a point to break bread with prostitutes and with tax collectors. The lesson here is not to break off friendships with anybody that you think is less holy than you are. Now, I think it's a matter of of where do you feel most at home? Where do you tend to settle? Where do you recharge? Maybe where does your animating energy come from? The stuff that gets you through the day, the people, the voices, the media, the situations that you tend to gravitate towards, are they full of scoffers, mean, biting, sarcastic? Are they joyfully sinful? Are they unrepentantly wicked? When I was in college, um, when I was in college, I got into some really gritty television dramas. I shows like Breaking Bad. Um, I, I tried Orange is the New Black for a while. I picked up Game of Thrones. These are the sort of critically acclaimed modern television shows that are undeniably well-written. They've got complex and weighty themes, huge production values. They are pieces of of narrative art. They're also undeniably chock full of drugs, sex, and violence. Um, They depict a world that is not built upon the convictions and the claims of Christianity. And it's not necessarily that I think Christians just should not watch these kind of shows as a sort of hard and fast rule. In fact, I think that there can actually be a lot of value in knowing and being able to interact with, maybe even respond 
to the stories that our own culture is telling about itself through mediums like television and movies. But college, particularly my freshman year of college, was it was a really difficult time for me in a lot of ways. I, I left home for the very first time. I didn't know anybody at the college that I was going to besides my admissions counselor, and they don't eat lunch with you every day, actually. Um, I, I was stressed out a lot, and these shows became my retreat, my escape, my home. I'd get through a day of school by looking forward to losing myself in these stories for a few hours each night. And I wasn't watching them with some sort of solid Christian outlook, just like exploring and learning about a world that I knew wasn't mine and wasn't meant for me. I had sort of surrendered to them, kind of uncritically, unreflectively. I let myself become absorbed. I associated with them in a way that I think the psalmist might be getting at here in verse 1 and 2, allowing them to lead my thoughts and my mind wherever they wanted to take them. And the path towards becoming a happy, blessed, well-adjusted man or woman of God involves leaving these kind of places behind in search of a new and a different home. Verse 2 begins the positive portrait. We know what it's not, so what is it like? Rather than being most at home in in vindictive, angry, and, and sinful and scoffing environments, the blessed one delights in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. What do you think of, what sort of immediately comes to your head when you hear the word law? Like, what is a law? It's like a rule, or a commandment, or a statute, right? It's something that you can either obey or disobey. It's important that we realize that the psalmist means something much more broad and expansive here with the phrase, the law of the Lord. That phrase is often used in the, in the Old Testament as shorthand to refer to all of the holy scriptures that the nation of Israel would have had available to them at that point. The entire faith tradition of God's chosen people. It would have included literal laws, like rules and commandments that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, but it also would have included the creation narratives from Genesis, the stories of God leading his people out of Egypt and and providing for them as they wandered through the wilderness. And so when we approach Psalm 1 as Christians, trying to appropriate the Psalm's advice for our own lives and our own context, when we hear the, the law of the Lord, that phrase, we should think broadly of sort of the entire Christian tradition, the entirety of the Holy Bible, the life and the traditions of the church, our liturgical prayers and faith practices as a community centered on Jesus. Yes, we should also remember the literal laws, the Ten Commandments, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that kind of stuff, but much more than that as well. Everything that makes up our understanding, our way of understanding and living within the world that's characterized by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The happy, the blessed, the well-adjusted person delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The next key word here is meditates. It's a word that's just fun to say in the Hebrew. It's harag, a sign of some breathiness on both sides, Uh, and it's related to the word for breath. A super literal translation might be something like mutters under one's breath. In the law of the Lord he delights in on his law, or he mutters on this law under his breath day and night. For the happy and blessed person, the law of the Lord, the story of the all-powerful God, it's like the air that they breathe in and out. It's never far from them. It never leaves them but for a moment. Day and night, it wanders through their minds. It's their default. It's their retreat. It's their home. And here's the thing that we really need to realize is that we, we will end up meditating on something. When things quiet down, when church is over, you have a moment to yourself, something is going to begin playing in your mind. 
something is going to occupy your thoughts. When I was a freshman in college and those quiet moments came around, came around I often found that it was the scenes and the twists from Breaking Bad or Games of Thrones, Game of Thrones that was running behind my eyelids. Um, I know that I've talked to people who've sort of been sucked into the 24-hour news cycle and they can begin to hear the anchor's voice in their head as they fall asleep at night. Our minds and our hearts want to be occupied. They need something to mull over and to process in the background. Something is going to be the atmospheric music in your head. The happy person of Psalm 1 is preoccupied with the teachings and the commandments and the stories of God. The rest of the psalm consists of an overarching metaphor that more fully describes the blessed person. What happens when a person leaves behind the company and the comfort of sin, wickedness, and scoffers, and instead tries to allow the law of the Lord to become the air that they breathe day and night? Well, the psalmist suggests that they are like trees planted beside streams of water. It's a beautiful metaphor. I love it. And, and what makes it great and what makes any good metaphor and any good poem great is, is its potential for many and varied interpretations and applications. In what ways is the happy and blessed man or woman of God like a tree planted beside streams of water? The psalmist is going to f- more fully flesh it out for us, and we'll get to that in a moment, but we are also free to wonder and explore this question for ourselves. That's what's so beautiful about reading poetry as Holy Scripture. So you can ask yourself this question, in what ways has your faith had this effect in your own life, made you like a tree planted beside a stream of water? I posed this question in a Bible study once, um, and a woman responded by telling the story of her, of her two late-term miscarriages. Um, and as you can imagine, it was a very difficult and heartbreaking story. She and her spouse had always wanted children, only for her to lose two different babies, one at 24 weeks and one at 26 weeks. And she said in this Bible study that spending so much time in cycles of hope and then despair and then hope and then despair again really was like running out of water, felt like she was in danger of of just shriveling up. And she told us about how um, crying out to God through scripture and through honest prayer and worshiping weekly within her faith community, it really did act as sort of like a tether um, that, that held her to something solid and dependable, replenished portions of her energy and hope that she had lost. She really liked the idea of roots. That's where she decided to go with this metaphor, um, just like the prophet Jeremiah mentioned in our other reading from this morning. Her faith and her faith community were like a root system that gave her nourishment and kept her standing during some of the darker periods of her life, like a tree planted beside streams of water. I really resonate with the next verse, actually. The blessed, the happy person is like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit at its time. That bears its fruit at its time. There's a rhythmic and and cyclical quality to a healthy tree, isn't there? It grows its, its leaves, it loses its leaves at the same time each year. An apple tree bears apples at about the same time each and every year. I'm a, I'm a habitual person. I, I am doing my best when I have daily and weekly rhythms that I follow consistently. And I found that the rhythmic, the habitual aspects of the Christian life have been extraordinarily helpful for me during difficult periods. Uh, to return one more time to poor freshman year Caleb, um, at that time during the week, I was struggling to make friends. I was wandering through crowded cafeterias, not knowing who to sit by. They just throw you out there in this like giant sea of people and you just have to 
walk up to random people and ask if you can sit next to them. As an introvert, that was, that was just brutal. Um, I, I, was, I was losing myself in these TV shows and whatnot during the evenings. But, but during the weekend, on, on Sunday, I would climb onto my bike and I would pedal to some worship service at one of the local churches. Because um, that's, that's just what I have to do on Sunday mornings. I owe a lot of this to my parents. Um, they, they made sure we were at church probably 50, 52 weekends out of the year when they were in charge of us. Um, and I, I don't know what to do with myself. I, I get a little antsy at like 10 a.m. on a Sunday if I'm not headed to worship. And, um, and that habit as dependable and rhythmic as a tree bearing fruit every summer, it kept me from getting too lost that first year of college because no matter how anxious I got, no matter how many depressing stories of traitorous and bloodthirsty nights I watched on HBO or Hulu or something, once a week at the very least, I was going to hear stories about God, I was going to worship Jesus, and I was going to give the Holy Spirit a chance to work on my heart and my mind. It gave me a way back. It was a habit that kept me rooted and plugged into a water source. Um, and, you know, I... It may be hard and awkward to hear a pastor find his way to this point during the sermon, which is basically coming to church each week is important, but that's not all that I mean here. I think that it's important to build worshipful habits into your days, into your weeks, even if they don't always take the form of coming to an in-person worship service each week, each Sunday. The Christian rhythms of life are important and a crucial part of this blessed, happy, well-adjusted life that we're fleshing out together this morning. And like I mentioned, they can take a variety of forms, morning prayer, evening prayer, um, worshiping God at, at certain times and in certain places during your week um, really goes a long, long way. I found, I found that sometimes people don't really like the end of this psalm. Um, it's a beautiful and poetic psalm, but the ending occasionally can feel like a bit harsh, uh, like a harsh place to end. It goes, the, the blessed and the happy one who delights in the law of the Lord and who mutters upon it day and night, they're like a tree planted beside streams of water, but not so the wicked. They are like chaff, blown away by the wind. The wicked will not stand at the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Do we really need that bit about, about judgment in there? And what is otherwise just a totally lovely and uplifting psalm? Sometimes people feel that way. I sympathize with that response. Um, I really do. I think, I think the main thing that we should take away from this ending is that wickedness, that sin and evil, they are, they are temporary. They're like chaff blown away by the wind. They're here today, but they are gone tomorrow. And I think that that is actually a pretty radical and a very encouraging ending to this poem. Because so often in this life, wickedness, brokenness, and sin, they seem so typical. It seems the norm, even inevitable sometimes, rather than just a passing inconvenience on the way to God's justice. The wickedness inside ourselves, that which often keeps us from being this happy, blessed, and well-adjusted person that we so desperately want to be. It often feels insurmountable, like maybe it's more basic to us, to who we are, than anything else. The wickedness out in the world, war and rumors of wars, sickness, declining health, dangerous and selfish people who sometimes to simply be gaining more and more influence and more and more power. Sometimes it seems ingrained, woven into the fabric of the world and of reality. And that's why I think the psalmist ends by assuring us that this, this is just a persistent illusion. Those things will not stand at the judgment. They'll be thrust out of the congregation of the righteous. Wickedness, sin, and death, they are real, they are terrible, but they are ephemeral 
or like a vapor. Because the way of the righteous, the way of goodness and love and mercy, that way is grounded in the very mind of God. God knows, He acknowledges, He supports, and He is the foundation for the way of the righteous, for all good and all perfect things. But the way of the wicked perish. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.